This next story doesn't have a title. I hear from Edna St. Vincent Millay that childhood is the kingdom where nobody dies. In that respect, I remained a child until only recently. I'm all grown up now, though. Admitted into adulthood on April 24th, 2010, at the ripe age of 20. It took 20 years, and I wish it had taken longer. It's too bad that someone had to sacrifice his or her own life for the sake of another's maturity. It's too much pain to bear. With pain so heavy, I generally rely on the weakness and distortion of memory to diminish the otherwise interminable hurt. But right now, as I venture through the hazy corridors of my mind, I encounter a memory as touched as it was on the day of its inception. But there's something missing. It's not blurry, but absent entirely. I must retrace the memory. Perhaps then, I'll find what has been omitted. It's Saturday morning, and I traditionally go to Jeb's for breakfast with my mom. I'm supposed to work with Steve today, but then again, I'm always supposed to work with Steve. He's undoubtedly recovering from the hangover induced by his wild Friday night antics. I can see him now, green-faced, eyes crusted over, a dull yellow having stolen the whites from his glossy eyes. This is unlike any other day. In a couple hours, after he realizes working today is a lost cause, he'll call and declare that we'll just finish the job Monday. This is typical Steve. I expect nothing else. I go to Jeb's and I get the usual, the Linguisa country breakfast with hash browns. I devour the delicious breakfast while my mom drones on about the same stuff I've heard too many times to care. I was supposed to go out with Steve last night, but he went to the bar, she says. I think he feels bad. He's been calling all morning. He wouldn't be calling all morning if he had just answered the first time, I tell her with a mouthful of greasy Linguisa, and I'm sure he feels bad. He always feels bad. My mom is in love with Steve. She wants to marry him, and Steve is in love with her, but Steve has another love. He loves alcohol. Steve used to live with us, but my mom couldn't handle being second to the liquor. She kicked him out. I remember nights lying in the living room watching Sports Center with Steve, dim glow of the television illuminating the room. He'd eventually fall asleep, and all through the night he'd hiccup. I slept on the couch, and he on the chair. I'd lie awake listening to his hiccups until they eventually lulled me to sleep. We go home after breakfast, and next on our agenda is the gym. My mom has seven missed calls from Steve, but she has better things to do. Her rationale is that he ignored her the previous night, so she is in no way obliged to respond to him. She leaves her phone at home, and upon returning from the gym, she notices more missed calls. Steve is really adamant about getting a hold of her, I think. He usually gives up by now. Then my phone rings. I glance at the flashing screen. It reads, Steve T. Sup, fag? I greet him. Aaron, can I talk to your mom? Steve's sister, Jen, asks, her voice cracking as she makes the impossible request. I can hear the sorrow in her voice. Copious saliva distorts her words. Her quivering jaw transforms each syllable. She's crying. My stomach drops, and I know something's wrong. Jennifer's words are unintelligible with the phone pressed against my mom's ear, but I know what she's saying. Steve died, she wails, and then chaos erupts. My mom is immediately sobbing. Tears fall before the words leave Jen's lips. My mom cries out in agony, and I crawl inside my head because I can't handle this. I won't handle this. Blankly, I stare straight ahead. My vision becomes as blurred as my reality, and I attempt to drown out my mom's cries, but their volume is reaching decibels beyond that which I can silence. The truth breaches my mind's defenses, and I'm forced to face what I know will destroy me. Okay, Steve died, I think to myself. But no crying. You have to be strong for your mom. My mom, 
her legs no longer capable of supporting herself, falls to the cold, callous kitchen tile. I try to support her, but I see her shiny cheeks, her weary red eyes, and my manifestation of strength is quickly dismantled. I fall to the ground because I've forgotten how to function. I've forgotten why I was supposed to be strong. Tears tear down my cheeks into my mouth. My insides feel as if they've been wrenched from my body with each sob. I hug my mom and feel the adhesive mixture of snot and tears slimy against my neck. Despite the growing affliction, I somehow manage to feel disgusted by the slime. I'm wondering how I could possibly think of anything other than the current tragedy. It must be a defense mechanism, I think. The brain can probably process only a limited amount of sadness. We remain in this slimy embrace until time becomes an illusion. I black out. When I regain consciousness, I'm sitting in the car on the way to Steve's house. The initial shock subsides enough for me to formulate pertinent thoughts. I have a vague awareness that I'm in denial about Steve's death. I was just working with him yesterday. I could feel the stir of vitality pulsing in his warm handshake. And I could confirm he was breathing because I smelled the remnants of Jack Daniels on his breath. I can't imagine that his skin is now cold, his body lifeless. I can't imagine that his lively, smile-provoking demeanor has been reduced to a cold corpse, an empty vessel. Tears well up intermittently throughout the car ride, but I retract them back into their ducts. I'm saving them for his family. We arrive at his house, and everyone has already gathered there. His mom, his sisters, his baby brother. The cars of cousins, aunts, and uncles congest the driveway and line the streets. I wind through the cars to the steps of the house. My steps become heavier directly in proportion to proximity of the front door. I don't think I can endure the pain I'm soon to witness. I open the door and I'm greeted by an empty living room. Silence reigns supreme over the dimly lit room with the exception of a crackling fire. I scan the pictures on the wall directly in front of me and there's the picture of Steve I never truly noticed until now. He has that wide mouth, almost comical smile of his, the smile I'll never see again. The empty house indicates that the family is gathered on the back porch. I walk to the sliding glass door, open it, and I'm assailed by cigarette smoke. The cloud of smoke lingers among the crowd, but it's not thick enough to obscure the sorrow. I see only two faces amongst the crowd, Jen's and Kathy's, Steve's mom. Jen wears Steve's Matt Kenseth NASCAR shirt. Kathy wears what she must have slept in last night, a baggy white t-shirt and faded black sweats. One glance in the eyes of these broken women, and I hope I'll never know their pain. He loved you like you were his own, Aaron, Jen tells me. He did, sweetie, Kathy concurs. He loved you and your brother so much. This is too much for me. I attempt to say I know, but my throat has become swollen and nothing comes out. I choke on my words. Unable to speak, I hug the two women and wish that I had more strength to transfer into their bodies. We cry and we hug and we try to share the burden, but nothing seems to alleviate the pain. We keep trying, though. We try all day. The question that is on everyone's mind is how'd he die? Steve was only 40 and he acted younger. No one foresaw this occurrence. It came as a complete shock, the kind of shock that leaves one questioning reality. It's too surreal to grasp, too unreasonable to accept. In between all the crying and hugging, we muse over what happened. We each develop our own theories and we blame everything but Steve. Blaming doesn't help though, nothing helps. Steve's white Dodge Diesel is parked in the driveway, never to be driven by him again. I sit alone in his truck, hoping that he'll talk to me. I sit in the driver's seat and place my hand where his once were. The steering wheel is cold to the touch. 
I pretend the truck is running. I imagine the roaring of the diesel engine vibrating the seats. I picture Steve driving, both hands on the wheel, arms fully outstretched. I place his worn-out yellow NASCAR hat on my head, and I pretend I'm Steve. I, pretending to be Steve, talk to myself. I formulate responses based on what I think Steve would say. I don't know what I'll do without you, Steve. You taught me that life isn't always so bad. What happens when I forget and don't have anyone to teach me? I'll be around, he assures me. I'll remind you every day. I'm going to miss you. I don't think I'll ever be the same. Life is good, man, he tells me. I'm sorry I won't physically be there, but you'll be fine. Do me a favor and take care of your mom and my family for me. I'll do my best. I'll get the firewood. I'll even chop it. I'll do anything they need. I promise him. Bye, Steve. More family arrives periodically throughout the day. All those who care most about Steve are here. It's too bad all these folks who care about him didn't demonstrate it during his life. Later in the evening, Steve's kids show up. Everybody's sadness increases immensely when they see Steve's son, Brad. Brad looks like Steve 20 years ago when blood still pulsed in his body. We all want to pretend that Brad can replace Steve. We want to think that Steve will live on through Brad. The unfortunate truth is that Brad, with the exception of appearance, is nothing like Steve. After some more crying and hugging, all the adults go to the bar that Steve loved, and I'm left alone with Brad. I'm not going to treat Brad any differently simply because his dad died. I feel like my dad just died, so I think I have a good idea of what he's going through. Brad talks about his dad, our dad, for a bit, and then he goes off on one of his rants. I used to call my dad when I needed help making a decision, Brad says. Now, I have to base my decisions off what I think he'd say. I have no response. I'm not ready to talk about this. After a brief stint of silence, Brad begins to talk about utterly irrelevant matters. You know about Benjamin Franklin discovering electricity? He asks. All that business about the key and the kite and the thunderstorm? Well, that story was created by our government as a symbol. You see, electricity is alien technology, and the government wanted to include it in our history, but couldn't outright expose the existence of aliens. The key represents us opening the door. He goes on and on, and I can't believe the garbage that's coming out of his mouth. I'm in a trance, staring at his moving lips as he prattles on. Interminably, shit continues to pour from his mouth. Take a fucking physics course, I think to myself. Why are you talking about this anyway? Don't you realize your dad just died? He briefly pauses, providing me with an opportunity to escape, but not quick enough. He begins a new subject. Have you heard of antimatter? He asks, intent on explaining it to me regardless of my response. No, I tell him. Enlighten me. Antimatter contains more mass than anything in the world, he explains. It only exists in space. We've been studying it because it's going to lead to breakthroughs in time travel. Great, I think. More conspiracy theory bullshit. He leaps from subject to subject, spewing nonsense for about an hour. I stop listening after he tells me about all individual entities making up a single collective consciousness. I would never accept a reality that supports the notion that I share the same mind as him. He eventually shuts up, and I'm able to get away. Late at night, the adults return home laden with the scent of liquor and cigarette smoke. We all have our ways of coping. Alcohol is one of them. By now, we've done enough hugging and crying, so I drive my mom home. I kiss her goodnight and lie awake in the darkness. I wish I had Steve's hiccups to help me sleep. I envision Steve's truck idling in the driveway. I eventually produce his truck's drone in my mind. I try to use that to fall asleep. 
I pick up my phone to call him and tell him how silly I'm acting because my juvenile mind still doesn't get it. Calling him crosses my mind frequently, but the notion is always subdued by the realization that he has departed. With our extensive forms of communication, one would think that we'd have some way of communicating with the dead. It kills me that I can't converse with them now. I half wish that I don't wake up tomorrow. Good night, Steve. Hiccup. Hiccup. Steve died in his sleep. Five months ago, I was wishing for the same thing. The key part missing from my memory is how he died, and I still can't figure it out. Rumor has it, alcohol and painkillers were involved, though. I won't allow myself to know how he died. It's my way to avoid acknowledging that he's truly dead. In dreams, my mind creates fabrications of what happened, but these carry no weight. Sometimes I pretend the soul exists and that when Steve is in my dreams, it's actually his soul visiting me. Last time he visited, he told me that death is scary. I feel bad for him when he visits. He hasn't changed at all, and I'm an entirely different person. After all, I'm an adult now. I miss you, Steve.